0: The reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 15 starting in verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloah, Eloah, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God indeed. Eloi Eloi lema sabachthani. My God my God why have you forsaken me? As we have been walking through this series it feels as we've been preaching it for Kyle and me it's getting darker and darker and I think today it's actually the darkest point. As we finish this Lent series as next week we move into the triumphal entrance. We come now to, really, in the history of redemptive history, the darkest moment. Christ on the cross. I wonder if you've ever thought about what it means to be forsaken. To be given up on by someone you love and trust and depend on. I think it's one of the most brutal experiences you can possibly go through. There's a real sense, I think, most of us would experience of betrayal, of bitterness, of anger, of resentment, of just deep and intense pain. Maybe you have been forsaken by a lover that you'd committed your life to, that you'd put your trust in, and they left, they abandoned you, they walked away because they fell in love with someone else. That deep, abiding love, A deep trust crushed by abandonment. Perhaps you know, the motto of the Marines, no man left behind. We will not forsake you. It's an ideal, but it's not a reality. Too many times we hear stories, too many decisions have to be made in the heat of battle where people do get left behind, where choices are made because of limitations and problems can't be solved. They're saying you can depend on us, you don't need to be afraid. And yet in times, soldiers are sometimes forsaken, left behind. As a parent, I can't imagine ever forsaking one of my children, turning my back on them. Most of us would die for our children, would give anything for them. But some of you, I know, know what it's like to be abandoned by a parent, to feel that great deep loss, and in talking to you I know what you When you talk about that forsakenness, it's something that's lived with you for all your life. I remember when McLaren was two years old. We took him to hospital to have a cast removed for some surgery that had happened. And he had a stuffed nose. But because there were surgery stitches underneath, they needed to remove the cast, and they couldn't give him a little anesthetic. It was a cast that went to the top of his arm. And I had to hold him down in the operating room with a curtain on the other side while he used the saw or one of those uh, cast saws to cut off his cast. And he did not understand. Why would my father, who I have always loved and trusted and never done anything to help me, hold me down with a curtain beside me while I feel something going on on my wounded arm and I hear this noise and the dust comes up. And he was in tears, and he looked at me as if I had betrayed him, as if I had forsaken him. And that alone, that confused look in my child's eyes, was painful enough. Now, most of us think we know what it's like to to feel forsaken, perhaps, by God. Now, sometimes it happens because of suffering we're walking through. And we feel that weight and we wonder, where is God in this suffering? And if that's the case, I encourage you to go back and listen to Adrian's sermon from a couple of weeks ago, where she really looked at what it's like when Christ is drinking the same cup, that deeper, fuller cup of suffering that we drink. But most of the time, I think, especially in a country like this, in a place like this, we self-forsake. It's that we don't trust or love him enough. We don't depend on him. The taste of sin, the deliciousness of the the thing we're doing feels better to us, tastes better to us than a feeling of closeness to God. And this is just the feeling, of course, because we're not really separated from God, we're just isolating ourselves, self-forsaking in a sense. We feel separated, we turn away because we can't sin in his presence and we want to sin and so we move away. We we put down that sense of closeness in order to put down someone else and build ourselves up, or to gossip, or to boast. Or worse, after we've done that, we say to ourselves, well, I'd better pay back some sort of penance, some sort of emotional self-flagellating penance, rather than just turn in fellowship and obedience to God and say, how did I get here? Why did I do that? Let's work it out together in obedient fellowship. Instead, I I stand back from God, or we stand back from God for a little while to sort of pay a penance, in a sense, an emotional penance, to to make it okay to come back before him. That's not Jesus. He's loved God with a deep, abiding love since he first was born on this earth, Jesus the man. He has trusted God like a father, even walked to the cross. Your will be done, not my will be done. He knew and he lived as one who only knew he was completely dependent on God. That was his outlook. That was his approach. He was committed to prayer and submission in everything he did. And yet he was abandoned, forsaken. And it's devastating to him. He cries out from the cross, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is full of pain and agony and grief. And it's for us to explore this question My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus asked. And we're going to look at that from three big contexts it was hell, it was necessary, it is finished and then we're going to answer the question. It was hell, it was necessary, it was finished, and then we're going to answer the question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's start by looking at, it was hell. Now there are plenty of pictorial images of hell, sort of metaphors that are created in the Bible, burning pits of sulfur, uh, different images that sort of create the sense of pain and torment associated with being separated from God. And unfortunately, over time, they become almost cultural tropes, almost like uh, Dante's Inferno or uh, devils with horns uh, and, and tails and fiery, uh, fiery events, sort of like the same as heaven is sitting on A cloud with a harp. Now, most of us know that those tropes aren't really what's going on, but there's a danger in the trope itself that they create this juxtaposition between two philosophical opposites. Darkness is the opposite of light. Cold is the opposite of heat. And hell is the opposite of heaven. But the reality is best not understood in this opposite context, but rather in what we might call ontological absences which basically is a fancy way of saying what's not there. Darkness is really the absence of light. Cold is really the absence of heat. And hell is really the absence of God. I want you to do a little exercise for me, those of you who are comfortable. I'd just like you to close your eyes. Uh, think of yourself being in a, in a space. And think of all the good things that are there. And then we're going to slowly take them away. So I want you to first take away your spouse, now take away any children you might have, all the love and the joy, the laughter. Take away all of the delicious tastes, divine smells, gentle, kind, warm, affirming touches, beautiful sounds of music and birds chirping, anything which you find aesthetically pleasing, like art or trees, nature, waterfalls. All the beauty, take it all away. Take away anything that you think is trustworthy or safety. Just replace it with fear. Take away anything which is exciting, take it, replace it with boredom. Get rid of all the deep friendships, in fact get rid of all the friendships. Get rid of a fulfilling sex life. Get rid of meaningful work, plentiful resources, your health. Take them all away. Imagine yourself cold, naked, lonely, very lonely, eternally lonely. Left with nothing but yourself and your failings. Anything you thought was success has come to nothing and your self-loathing is ever-increasing. You're sitting in the ugly, cold, dark pit of self. God is absent. It's a hard place to even imagine. All of us at some time have probably had some tiny foretaste of hell, just a foretaste, but we mostly live in a well that's full Of God's grace, of His beauty, of His majesty, of His provision. And even when we are self-forsaking God, we live in that space and enjoy those blessings. We can't even imagine the hell that we deserve, much less add up all the hell that all the children of God deserve. On the cross, Jesus bore all the hell of all of God's children. By grace and by grace alone we are saved, but grace is not cheap. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken so me? How tasty does that sin feel now when you see the cost? Does this cost help you trust in Jesus? If you're in his army, he came for you. No man or woman or child left behind. And that's a reality, not just an ideal. Does the cost help you see how completely dependent you are on him? Does fretless, pointless, self-forsaking, really trump fellowship in obedience submission? It was hell. It was hell on the Christ for cross. But it was indeed a necessary hell. The Biblical picture of sin and judgment is a Biblical theme. It runs all the way through Scripture. And there are pictures of that in very famous sermons. In fact, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, draws this really terrifying picture of people being dangling over a pit of fire by cobweb threads and being cut. And I really wish that he had not called the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but Sinners in the Hands of a Just God. Because judgment and sin and justice are related. It's a hard reality, but, the ju- but a just world requires justice. And mercy, when it's given, comes at a cost. You borrow my car and you smash it up, somebody pays for it. I can show you mercy, but that means I pay for the car. But restoration requires that somebody fixes that car. When we abuse God's creation, including one another, somebody pays for it. In the garden, they were told that the consequences of rejecting a creator and a sustainer, really in all truth, the natural consequences of rejecting a creator and a sustainer, are to lose the joys of the creation and not be sustained by the creator, and they define that as death. And the question you might ask at the end of the incident in the garden where they sin and they're cast out is, where is that death? There's a foretaste of hell, but it's not complete. The blessings of God are still present, even when they're cast out of the garden. But at that point, there's a process that's put in place. There's a process of mercy and restoration that's put in place. There's a, a system which is put in place to recognize that that's coming. An animal sacrifice system where you would put a lamb, or if you're on the other end of the social spectrum, a pigeon, you would sacrifice, and you would recognize you'd lay your hand on an animal, and that animal would be cut and sacrificed. And that was pointing forward to something. It was saying that this animal is getting what I deserve, the death that I deserve. There's a foretaste but not a complete sense. In fact, it's a tiny, tiny foretaste of what hell is. And there's a biblical theme that runs through alongside with this picture of sin and judgment and justice of a Messiah who's going to redeem. It's right there in the first, in the fall of Genesis. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And even in that one verse in Genesis, there's a hint that this Messiah will restore by paying the price. This is not an accident. It's not man that's in control here. Yet men hold the trial, that's true. Men nail the nails, that's true. Men lift the cross, that's true. But this is not an accident. Jesus' forsaking is an execution of a rescue plan by a just God paying the price now some theologies some schools of thought argue that it was just one big mistake that the jews just didn't recognize jesus and we better come up with another alternative that the cross should not have happened that's not true and i'm going to read through isaiah 53 through some of the verses and i want you to listen to these verses as i read through them how much this is a plan that's been orchestrated by god I'm going to read verses 3, 5, 6, 8, 10, and the second part of 12. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrows, where we get our series title from, and familiar with pain. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought peace on us was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. We are all like sheep, we have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who have his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. (coughs) Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand, for he bore the sins of many and made intercessions for those transgressions. The theme of redemption and atonement of sin come together on the cross of justice and mercy. They come together on the cross. Jesus is both the offering and the offerer, the high priest and the lamb, the sacrifice that atones for all of us. And he says so himself in John 10, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus' death, Jesus death was hell and it was necessary hell. And it's dark, it's dark and it's hard to hear and it's hard to think about. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? it's the first lines of psalm 22 and it's dark but the good news is that there is more to both the psalm and the story psalm 22 really does lay out the story of the crucifixion it begins with those lines my god my god why have you forsaken me it looks at the mockery looks at the the casting of the clothes by the soldiers. looks at the piercing of the body. There are many allusions in that psalm, not even allusions, direct references in that psalm to the the crucifixion and to the lead-up to the crucifixion. But it finishes with these words. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. (coughs) And when we go to our passage, we see that there are immediately right after Jesus cries out my god my god why have you forsaken me there are three, three movements out of the darkness and they begin almost immediately starting in verse 37 the loud cry with a loud cry Jesus breathed his last breath now we know that the book of peter is oh sorry the book of um, mark is primarily from the account of peter we know that peter is standing off at this side, And perhaps he doesn't hear what these last words are, but we know from the Gospel of John that the words were, it is finished. He has done it. It is finished. The work of atonement was completed on Good Friday, and this is a shout of triumph. That last cry is a shout of triumph. Jesus went all the way in obedience to the Father, and it provides a deep assurance to the soul. Salvation is offered only through Christ. And then we move to verse 38. The curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom. The curtain in the temple. Now, that was the temple curtain that separated the holies from the holy of holies. No one was allowed to go there because no one was allowed to see the face of God, to be in the presence of God. And except for once a year on the day of atonement, when the high priest would go in and they literally had a rope tied to him because if he saw the face of God, he could die and they might have to pull him back. So there's a sense here that the ripping of the curtain is saying that, the, uh, that, that God is no longer mediated through the sacrificial system, through the priesthood. He's the high priest himself and the sacrifice himself. We are free to see God face to face. There's no danger in coming, encountering God. We can sit in his presence unafraid of our sin faithlessness we can sit in his presence and work through our sin and faithfulness with him we don't need the self-flagellation self-doubt now do you rejoice and use the access made possible by Christ's work on the cross do you finally in verse 39 and when The centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. And don't you think it's ironic that a soldier, one of the soldiers that was probably involved in nailing him to the cross and lifting him up was the first to acknowledge that he was the son of God. And we know from from other places in the Gospels that along with the soldier was the thief. These are not your intellectuals. These are not the self-assured. These are the rough and the ready probably pretty sure of their brokenness and their sinfulness. And here they are crying out, this is the living God. And certainly neither of them would describe themselves as being good enough. So if you're asking yourself, am I good enough? Finish the question, good enough for what? Are you good enough to be accepted by God? No, you're not. Acceptance comes only through the grace by faith in Christ's work on the cross. And the only thing you need to know then, the only thing you really need to worry about, is leaning into that curtain, curtain-torn relationship and moving forward independence and submission. Doing the work, the good works that God has prepared you for. All the self-doubt, all the self-recrimination, self-recrimin- all the self-loathing, All of the belief that you're not good enough or you have to do the next thing to be right with God has no place. Ephesians 2 puts it like this in verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast or self-recriminate or self-doubt. For we are all God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And there's a strange lightness that comes with being called out of the darkness and into the obedient light. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that question, we say we would answer it, the answer to that question is sitting next to you, Or sitting in front of you or sitting behind you and maybe you can deal with that but it's also sitting where you're sitting when we glimpse through the veil of self-loathing or pride there is nothing to see but the intense love and desire of our God to fellowship with us my God my God why have you forsaken me Because of you, Brad. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of you, Iris. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of you, Tim. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of you, Maggie. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we think about this very dark, and yet very momentous act of love, of mercy, of grace, of bringing together your justice and your love. Father, we thank you for it. Help us to give up all of the nonsense, all of the self-focus, whether that be self-condemnation or self-justification. Help us to look at you and the cross and what you've done and the great love that was for us and just respond to walk out in obedient faith, to walk into the light. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.